Last week, Mother Morrison led us through the ancient story of the Israelites moving unhappily out of Egypt, murmuring about the food, the water, short everything on the journey. They seemed to have forgotten that they had been slaves in Egypt and now were free to head to the land that had been promised to their forefather Abraham. The dangers of the journey have all been conquered for generations by the time this story of misery and complaint was written down as part of the most sacred Hebrew text, the Torah. In today's first reading from the Hebrew scriptures, we have moved well beyond that ancient history, beyond the declarations of the laws, and have moved not only into new lands, but new expectations. The people of Israel and Judah have, by Jeremiah's time, occupied the Holy Land to which Moses led them for many generations. And now the prophet declares that they will have a new relationship with God. No longer will there be fear and judgment and the admonitions to strictly adhere to the laws and the commandments or to suffer the consequences. Now God will be with them. The rules of relationship will be not declared and written in those stones that Moses carried down the mountain, but will be written into their very beings, into their hearts. The distance between God and humans, the humans he's created and cared for, is removed. God is with them, each one of them. And it is as if the voice of Jeremiah explicitly promises the love of God later to be proclaimed by Jesus. And of course, that's exactly how the early Christians, as well as the church down through the ages, has read this passage. But what did this passage say to the audience who first heard it? What did they make of it? After the earlier predictions of the punishments God would bring upon the world, this report from Jeremiah must have seemed miraculous, nearly impossible. This did not sound to them like the God of the past, the God of the Torah. Writing is set down for many reasons. Not all writing gives directions. Not all writing is straightforward history or biography. Not all writing is fiction. Sometimes we forget that when we read or hear passages from the Bible. And there are people who read the Bible as objective history or as an absolute rule book or as word-for-word -word reporting of events or conversations. Most Episcopalians do not. We try to remember, as Father David has so often reminded us, that the words were written for an audience very different from ourselves or our culture or our place in history. And the words were written in languages other than the one we speak or in which we read the text. Each preserved text had initial hearers who received it in a context perhaps far from our intellectual or emotional environment. Then it moved in time through peoples of different lands and languages and notions of writing. During some historical periods, writing itself was almost a magical concept. Those who wrote and those who read were almost by definition in touch with some magical realm. And authors had their own particular audiences in mind. And we probably weren't in that mix. Is it any wonder that we find it a challenge to know how we ought to take some of the lessons 
we hear on Sunday morning or read in private contemplation. Although, of course, there are hundreds of interpreters who are eager to tell us exactly what to make of every biblical passage. Jeremiah states clearly that his prophecy is coming directly from the Lord, that the voice behind the passage we hear today is God's. And what the Lord promises is that we are no longer strangers or victims or orphans, but that God and the love of God are written within us. Then in the letter to the Hebrews, the promise is given that if we obey Jesus and follow his commandments, we will share eternal salvation with him. We are, as we learn elsewhere, heirs through Christ. And this message is that if we follow Jesus, we must share his sacrifice, but we will also share his heavenly future. It's been suggested by a number of scholars that the Jews of the Bible, through the Bible, gave humankind the first view of human life in a continuum, leading somewhere, history. That is, instead of collections of episodes, the course of human experience was leading us to a goal. Before the Bible, and most importantly the concept of the Bible, human tribes and cultures collected stories of heroes, villains, gains, losses, victories, defeats. Most of the cultures of the world about which we know anything saw time as a cycle only. This is understandable given the rotation of the Earth and Earth's revolution about the sun and the obvious changes in return of the seasons. But with the Hebrew Bible, there's recorded an idea of movement in a single direction, from total dependence and suppression, slavery and absolute submission, to an idea of change, increasing freedom, and individual human will. And of course, when the Jewish scholars in around 250 before the Common Era collected their sacred texts together into one composite anthology, they began with a story of creation. And to be on the safe side, they put in two versions, which differ from each other. The history of the Jews clearly begins in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No shorter or clearer explanation of the Big Bang has been subsequently offered. So these Lenten readings we've been discussing can be seen as a kind of crossroads moment. The story of salvation is moving from slavery and fearfulness toward freedom and salvation and a sharing of eternal life with the Son of God. And at the same time, in a rather dizzying paradox, we found ourselves approaching the familiar cycle yet again of Jesus' travel to Jerusalem, to trial, and to execution. We know this cycle. And I've spoken before of the difficulty of seeing and experiencing it anew. But the lessons today should help steady us in our and the church's conviction and promise of the long line of history which we inhabit as we move into loss and then the triumph of not only our saviors but our own salvation. 
The gospel today is from John, and John often offers us ideas that also give us paradox, metaphor, and scenes that can seem detached from real experience. Today's is such a passage. First, some care is given to telling us that among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks who want to see Jesus. And after Jesus is notified, nothing more is said of those Greeks. What does follow is Jesus' exposition of several important ideas about faith, the faith of his followers and the necessity of dying in order to live. God the Father validates Jesus' promises in a voice like thunder, and Jesus offers the ultimate promise of the direction of our history. He says that the voice was spoken, has spoken not for him, but for his followers. And although he will be driven out, he will be lifted up, and all people will be lifted with him. And by a sort of unspoken assumption, I'm presuming that this must apply to the visiting Greeks, too, who are probably standing by listening and may represent all others, all strangers, all non-Greeks. What we do have from today's lessons is a significant movement from slavery to ultimate freedom, from the fear and need and subjection of humankind to honor and love, and a sharing of both sacrifice and salvation. As we follow our immediate path toward another Holy Week and Easter, let's remember that although we feel as if we have been here before, we also are moving through some inexorable arc toward our own and the world's salvation. Amen. <clears throat>